you for listening to this message brought to you by Living Word Church. We trust that as you hear the Word of God preached, you'll be encouraged and equipped to love God and do His will. If you're looking for a church home, please feel free to visit our Sunday morning worship service at 10 a.m. or visit our website at www.livingwordchurch.cc. And now for our message. The privilege of hearing from Adam this morning, continuing in our series on sanctification. So come bring the word, Adam. Thank you, Jay. Good morning, everyone. Um, as you guys know, we're in the middle of a, what will end up being probably six or seven week uh, kind of mini series on the topic of sanctification. And um, if we can pull up the passage from First Thessalonians, I'd like to read through the whole passage that we're covering this summer before we begin this morning, and then we'll pray. So this is First Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, starting in verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, to warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. That's our passage for this morning. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all, hold on to what is good, and reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we offer ourselves to you this morning. God, we acknowledge that you are our Lord, and we have no good apart from you. And God, as we study sanctification this morning, this, this summer, as we hear from your word about um, this idea of sanctification Uh, We acknowledge that we need that work in our lives and that it is a work that only you can do. So as we sing repeatedly this morning, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come and fill this place, fill each one of us, and touch us at the the, the deepest parts within us that need a touch from you for healing, for sanctification, for newness, for wholeness, whatever it may be. So Lord, we give ourselves to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So before I launch in to my sermon this morning, I have to thank my wife, Allie, who pretty much wrote this sermon, even though I'm about to preach it. Uh, I thought yesterday morning that I had a sermon, and then I was talking with her about it, and I realized I didn't have a sermon for today. So she gave me some input and some advice and whatever, and I kind of reworked things. Um, But if anything good comes out of the next 25 minutes, you can thank her and the Lord instead of me. Um, But I want to start this morning just with kind of an exhortation. Um, Oftentimes, when we come together to worship on a Sunday morning, I'm just struck by the reality that we're the people of God. Like, do we get that? Do we understand that? Do we understand what that means? We talk a lot about our individual identity being in Christ, and that is remarkable and worth dwelling on and celebrating 
but together we are the people of God. Like, that's mind-boggling. It means way more for us than I think we understand now and probably will ever understand. And yet, we get to spend our lives as Christians exploring what that means for us. And as the people of God, we are the exclusive people in the earth who have, in the richest, most intimate way, experienced God's love, his salvation, the newness that he offers to us, right? And it also means that as the people of God, we have the call of God upon our lives. And so we don't go about life living the way the rest of the world does. We have been set apart to live in a way that is unique, that stands out from the world. And in so doing, we, the people of God, bear witness to the kingdom of God that is coming even now, amen? It has come in Jesus, it is breaking in now, And when the world wants to know whether or not this is true, is the kingdom of God really coming to earth? They ought to be able to look at us and say, it is here if nowhere else, amen? That's the call of God upon our lives as the people of God. And it's it's really an extraordinary thing. And so this little sermon series that we're in that explores the idea of sanctification is really at the center of that call to be the people of God faithfully. I like that the title of this series, um, you, you may or may not know this, but we've, we've titled this sermon series, Sanctified Through and Through, which comes from um, the passage I just read from. And if you're anything like me, you might think, well, that's all well and good, but maybe we should call it Sanctified Through and Through and Through and Through and Through, because it doesn't seem like we get all sanctified on the first pass, right? Or maybe we should call it Sanctified Through and Through, etc., because it's a process that doesn't end, it didn't, you know... We didn't get everything all nice and neat and sanctified on the first try, so we better keep going through and through and through. Um, But sanctification is central to what it means to be the people of God because, and we often make this mistake, even if we don't realize it, I think, sanctification is not at all about being holier than thou, right? It's not about being better than anyone else or being right where others are wrong so that we can be the ones who are correct and who stand in judgment over them. No, sanctification is the process by which God makes us, his people, faithful to the call that he's put on us, right? It's it's kind of simple, and yet I think we often miss that. Sanctification is the process God uses to make us faithful to the call he's put on our lives. And what's important for us to realize, and this might be obvious, but I don't know that we always recognize it, I certainly don't, is that if that's the case, then God has always been working to make his people faithful. Amen? We're not the first people of God. From the very beginning, after the fall, God called Abraham. And then Abraham's family grew into the nation of Israel. And God worked in their story to make them faithful to the call he had put upon them. And so this kind of history of sanctification throughout the story of Scripture means that we can't treat today's passage as if it's in a vacuum all by itself, right? Without understanding the story of the Bible and how God works out his sanctification among his people, we will never understand what Paul means when he instructs the Thessalonians to make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but to always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. This passage deals with sanctification at a really deep level, right? Sometimes... I find myself thinking that there are kind of shallower levels of sanctification, right? I I have a garden. I like to to garden. And so when you pull weeds in the garden, some of them 
are just kind of grass that has come up through and the roots are shallow and they pull out nice and easy. And sometimes it feels like there are areas in our lives that come out a little easier, a little quicker. But if you've ever tried to pull like a dandelion that's been growing for a long time, you have to like dig a circle around it and get way underneath it and pull it out. And sometimes the root is this long. And usually you break off a little piece that leaves in the ground, which means it's going to grow back on you anyway. Uh, But sanctification is kind of like that, right? There are these different levels, if you will. And this passage deals with a deep one because this idea of uh, retribution is the word I'll use or paying back wrong for wrong. How do we respond to wrongdoing? It's something that's really deeply embedded within us. And so when we read this, we have to ask, how are the people of God to respond when they are wronged, right? The people of God who are not like the other peoples in the world. We have a very instinctive, natural way that we tend to respond to wrongdoing. But as you know, because we're the people of God, a lot of things that come natural to us need to be called into question. Can anyone, can I get a witness, right? So we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be God's people and to be wronged? How are we to respond to wrongdoing as Jesus' people? And the reason that the story of the Bible and the way that God works out sanctification is important uh, for understanding this passage is because this is not the first time that God's people have received instructions about how to respond to wrongdoing. Wrongdoing, retribution, how do we respond to wrongdoing has always been an issue. This will come as no surprise. And it's clearly seen all over Scripture. But as early even as Genesis 4, just four chapters into the whole thing, we get an example of this that is really remarkable and horrible and all kinds of things. And there's this guy whose name is Lamech, and he's maybe four or so generations removed from Cain, son of Adam and Eve who murdered his brother Abel. You know the story. Lamech is a few generations removed from him. And what happens is that Lamech is wounded. Um, he sings a song. That's, the, sh- the story of Lamech is very short. And more or less all that it contains is Lamech singing a song. And the song is about how he was wounded or injured by a young man, and his response was to kill that young man. So his response is way over and above the wrongdoing that was committed against him. Does this make sense? And not only are these the facts of the matter, but Lamech sings this song in sort of a boastful tone. Um, If you read the text in Genesis 4, you, you can kind of feel the grossness of it. Uh, if that's a a good way of putting it. And so, from there onward, we learn in the story of Scripture that this issue of wrongdoing and response to it is is a very relevant one. And it's, it's the kind of response to wrongdoing that we see in Lamech, which, as you know, is, is very relevant in our world today, right? This is not uncommon, this kind of overreacting to wrongdoing. This kind of Uh, egregious response to wrongdoing is why, a little later in the Old Testament, God gives his people a law, and in part what that law teaches is how they are to respond to wrongdoing. And this is often referred to as um, the lex talionis, or the law of retribution. It's found in multiple places in the Old Testament. Um, But one prime example you'll see is Deuteronomy chapter 19. And um, there's a context, but More or less what it teaches is that when a wrong is committed, you must purge the evil from among you. How do you do that? Well, the rest of the people will hear of what you do, 
and will be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Here's what you do. Show no pity to the wrongdoer. Take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. This is probably familiar to you, this kind of language. This is the law that's put in place to ensure that God's people, the nation of Israel, aren't responding to wrongdoing in the way that Lamech and others have done. Right? This puts a cap or a limit on response to wrongdoing. So rather than responding to a small injury with uh, the taking of a life, you are to take in equal measure. Life for life, foot for foot, eye for eye, so on and so forth. And what we learn here is that for the people of God in the Old Testament, God's sanctification in this area of wrongdoing and how to respond, the way that God was working to make them faithful was that they should respond to wrongdoing in equal measure. Right? This is how the evil among them will get purged, will get cleaned. It's kind of a straightforward equation. Equal measure response. Not difficult to get our minds around, but what we learn as the story goes on is that God's people don't become more faithful. If you know the story of the Old Testament, they tend to get worse. Right? There are a couple points at which, you know, under King David's reign, we might... You might think that there was kind of a peak or something like that. But the story as a whole, uh, there's no mistake to be made that from the beginning towards the end, it's a downward decline. The people of God become less and less faithful. And if we pay attention as we read the story of the Bible, we learn that this is because there's something within God's people that needs fixing or changing. Right, Deuteronomy chapter 30 or 31 kind of speaks of this for one of the first times, and it's all throughout the prophets. Uh, this idea that there's something on the inside that needs dealing with, right? The, the law of God needs to be written on their hearts to make them truly faithful. The law was a good thing and was given to God's people for their good and for the purpose of making them faithful to God's call on their lives, but it dealt with outward realities, and their inner sinfulness prevented it from being effective, right? The people of God got less and less faithful because although God had given them a good system of law to maintain their life, something within them needed to be cured for that to be effective. So in light of that, how then does Paul say what he says in our passage for this morning? In light of this story of how God gives a good law and yet the people somehow become less and less faithful, how can Paul say that they should make, uh, not respond to wrong with wrong? Is it because Paul reads the story and thinks, I better come up with something that will be more effective? Because Paul thinks he knows better than God did when he gave the law in the Old Testament? No. Paul says this because, as he writes in Romans chapter 8, what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God has done by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so God has condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Something, church, has happened in Jesus that has been effective where the law couldn't reach deeply enough. Something has happened that has dealt with the problem within the people of God, not just the outward reality of their actions. 
And so when Paul instructs the Thessalonian church not to return wrong for wrong, he's not saying this on a whim. He's channeling Jesus, right? When Jesus arrived on the scene just maybe a couple of decades before Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, he showed up and the first thing he did in the second and third, most of his time he spent proclaiming that the kingdom of God had arrived in him and that he was the king of that kingdom. And then after Jesus does this, at least in in Matthew's narrative, he stands up and he preaches a sermon that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And the point of the sermon is more or less this. The kingdom of God has arrived in me and this is how its citizens are to live. And we could preach for probably the rest of the history of this church on what the Sermon on the Mount has to say about that. But let's, say, let's look at two points that are important for us understanding Paul's instructions to the Thessalonians. And the first is this, that citizens of the kingdom of God live with an understanding that the Old Testament law pointed to and was fulfilled in Jesus. Right? Just a few verses into the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law to get rid of it, to set it aside. Don't think I've come so that you can ignore it or not pay attention to it. I have not come for that purpose, but to fulfill it. I have not come to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill it. So citizens of the kingdom of God give Jesus priority in all things, right? You know this, but this must include how we read and interpret the Bible. The Bible church doesn't read like a flat line. It reads on an incline, and it reaches its climax in the person of Jesus. Colossians tells us Jesus is the image of the invisible God, right? Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact representation of God's being, and that though God once spoke to us through the prophets, he has now spoken to us through his son. Jesus is the climax of the biblical story. He is the one through whom we read every page of scripture. There's something special and utterly unique about Jesus that changes the way we understand the Bible. And this speaks to number two, which is this, that because the Old Testament law, including this law of retribution, has been fulfilled in Jesus, because in Jesus something has happened that dealt with the inward problem of sinfulness, not just the outward reality, citizens of the kingdoms do not hold to the principle of lex talionis, of the law of retribution. The law of retribution embedded in the Old Testament law has in some mysterious way been fulfilled in Jesus along with the rest of it. This is why Jesus can say just a little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount, these words, and this is exactly what Paul is channeling in our passage in 1 Thessalonians as well as in Romans chapter 12. Jesus says this, Matthew 5 and verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. You have heard the principle of lex talionis, the principle of retribution. You've heard that when you are wronged, you should respond in equal measure. You know this. You know it well. But I tell you. This is the unique authority of Jesus. No one else can speak of God's law in the Old Testament and say, but I tell you, and yet Jesus does. He says, but I tell you, 
do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take away your shirt, hand over your coat as well. By the way, that's pretty much all they would have been wearing in those days. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them a second mile. Give to the one who asks of you and do not turn away the one who wants to borrow from you. Church, these are some of the most challenging words Jesus ever speaks. And yet, Jesus has authority to say that. Because Jesus is a wise teacher, but not only is he a wise teacher, he is the Messiah. He is the king of the kingdom, amen? And in his own life, Jesus embodied every single word of this. Every word he ever taught, Jesus embodied, but in a, in a way that is startling here, Jesus has embodied every single word of this passage. When Jesus is taken to the cross, and of course wronged in the most unjust way imaginable, we know that Jesus has power to respond, amen? Jesus said he could call down a legion of angels. Or maybe it was someone else who said that and Jesus refused it. Anyway, he could have done it. Jesus could, of course, have responded in any way he chose. In equal measure, according to the law, or in greater measure, right? If he so desired. And yet, Jesus' choice is not to respond in equal or greater than equal measure, but instead to do nothing. Jesus' response to wrongdoing is to do nothing and to absorb the wrongdoing into himself. This is what Paul means at the end of Romans 12 when he uses the phrase, overcoming evil with good. Church, we often allow ourselves to think that if a wrong is committed in response to a wrong, then that wrong becomes a right. Did you catch that? If I commit a wrong in response to someone wronging me, then my wrong becomes a right. This is kind of natural to us. But Jesus will have none of it. His calling for us is higher and greater. Jesus calls us, like he did himself, to forego any retribution in favor of suffering love. Jesus calls us, in Paul's words, not to be overcome by evil, by responding to it with more evil, because that is exactly how evil perpetuates itself, right? Every time I respond to evil with evil, to wrong with wrong, evil gains more momentum, and it keeps itself alive. This is how it works. It's very crafty. Instead of this, Jesus calls us, his people, to overcome evil with good. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has said in his amazing book that you all should read, The Cost of Discipleship, these words. The only way to overcome evil is to let it run itself to a standstill because it does not find the resistance that it is looking for. Evil is looking for resistance because resistance perpetuates evil. Resistance merely creates further evil and adds fuel to the flames but when evil meets no opposition and encounters no obstacle, but only finds patient endurance, its sting is drawn, but at last it meets an opponent which is more than its match. Of course, this can only happen 
when the last ounce of resistance is abandoned and the renunciation of revenge is complete, then evil cannot find its mark. It can breed no further evil, and it is left barren. Evil church becomes a spent force when we put up no resistance. This does not come naturally to us, church, but it is indeed the way of Jesus. Jesus taught this, and Jesus embodied it. So while the story of the sanctification of God's people has reached its fulfillment in the person of Jesus, right? It might not be fulfilled in my life or yours. There's more work to be done. But the story has reached its climax in Jesus. And while the lex talionis, the law of retribution, sought to purge evil by way of equal retribution, equal response, Jesus has shown us in his own body that the only way to purge evil is to endure it patiently through suffering love. What the law was powerless to do, God has done in Christ. Patiently enduring evil, even when evil is, of course, unjust, empties the gas tank of evil, to use maybe a silly analogy. And evil is left stranded on the side of the road and cannot move forward. We are called to be the people who patiently endure it, who overcome evil, not with more evil, but with good. This is how God intends to purge the world of evil. This is the wisdom that Paul's instructions to the Thessalonians is drawing upon, right? And it's wisdom for us as well. We are, again, the people of God with the call of God upon our lives. And that call is that we are to be distinct from the rest of the world. God has chosen us, his church, to be the people who show the world what it means when Jesus is Lord. The world ought to look at Living Word Church and know what it's like for Jesus to be Lord over a group of people. And God's sanctification is working in us to make us faithful to that call. In church, the world operates on either this principle of equal retribution or whatever you would call it when it's more than equal. Because we know that it's not always just equal, right? One glance at the news tells us that retribution is often much more than is deserved, just like good old Lamech in Genesis chapter 4. But what the world does not know is that Jesus has fulfilled this, done away with it, and calls us higher to purge evil by absorbing it into ourselves just as he did on the cross. Jesus has shown us a better way. And by his power, we can be a people who embody this better way so that the world can know that Jesus is Lord. Right? This is not a simple task. It's not easy. It's not natural. But we're not alone in it. We have one another and the head of the church is Christ. And he has completed this faithfully on our behalf so that we might walk in his footsteps. Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount, I'll just paraphrase it, with something like, anyone who does not do that, right? It's the story of the, the building the house on a firm foundation, right? The sand or the rock. And he says, anyone who hears these words and does not do them is like one who builds their house upon the sand. But those who do hear these words and put them into practice, build their house 
on a firm foundation. Jesus has shown us a better way. The calling is high. The task is not easy. But he is Lord of all things. He's Lord of the church, of this church, of you and I, of our lives. And he goes before us and makes it possible for us. Bonhoeffer says this, and I'll end here. The cross is the only power in the world which proves that suffering love can avenge and vanquish evil. Amen. Let me read that again. The cross of Jesus is the only power in the world which proves that suffering love can avenge and vanquish evil. Take a moment and think about the myriad ways that the world around us seeks to vanquish evil. And let me know if you think of one that has a chance at working. I could think of probably dozens. A few that come to mind perhaps more quickly than others. The world is full of its own wisdom. With what it thinks are good ideas for purging the world of evil and creating world peace. And Jesus has given us a better The cross is the power that proves that the only way to rid the world of evil and anguish is to absorb it into ourselves in the power of Christ. Jesus, we exalt you this morning. We acknowledge that you have shown us a still more excellent way, that you are the exact representation of God's being, that you are the voice of God speaking to us with complete clarity. And Lord, we acknowledge that you in your cross have won victory over evil once and for all. And we acknowledge that we are your people who are called to follow in your footsteps. Lord, we cannot pretend that the call is easy or that the cross is light. And yet we know that you carry it with us and that your burden is easy, your yoke is light, and that you empower us by your Holy Spirit to be faithful to the call you have placed upon us. So Lord, we submit ourselves to you that your sanctification would have its way in our lives. Lord, that you would make us faithful to the calling you have placed upon us. Not so that we might stand in judgment over anyone else, but so that the world might know that Jesus is Lord. God, we give ourselves to you for this great task. We rejoice in what you've done for us and in what you are doing in our lives even now. And we declare that we are your people, God, that we are determined to live faithfully before you, to give ourselves to you each day, and that we want your purposes to be worked out among us. Lord, we want our family and our friends and our coworkers and our neighbors and our community to be able to look at our life together and know that Jesus is Lord. So we give ourselves to you. Lord, that you would sanctify us in spirit and truth, that you would make us new where the old self reigns supreme, and God, that you would use us in ways we could never have imagined. Lord, we pray that what is natural to us in this area of wrongdoing and retribution would be submitted to your lordship, and that you would bring new life there, that you would take from us our natural inclination to respond in like measure or in greater than like measure and teach us what it means, like Jesus, to absorb wrongdoing. God, give us the strength and the courage that is necessary. And let us be a people 
who play some small part in your task of purging this world of evil. God, we want the buck to stop here. We want the gas tank to empty out when evil meets us in our daily life. So God, work that out among us, we pray. We submit ourselves to you and, and we exalt Jesus, who is the exemplar of all this, who has done it in himself, and who gives us the strength and wisdom necessary to follow in his footsteps. Lord, we love you. We rejoice in relationship with you. We're excited to be your people. And we pray that you would work out your good purposes among us. In Jesus' name, amen.